0: station and
1: this is WMNF Tampa 88.5 on the left side of your dial best little radio station on planet earth wishing you a happy thanksgiving and you want to stay tuned for a pre-recorded true talk show
2: Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. My co-host is taking the month off. So you're going to be just listening to me. We are going to have a very, very interesting show today. We're going to be talking to uh, Masoud Hayoun. He is an American, Arab, Jew and he is the author When We Were Arabs A Jewish Family's Forgotten History it's a fascinating book that I just finished reading and I can't wait to talk to Masoud so I asked Masoud to send me songs to play today so he sent me this song that I have listened to several times it's by Lili Bonishi I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly he is Algerian also Jewish and the song is Ana fil Hub. I had no idea when I was listening to this song that this beautiful, amazing love song was by an Algerian Jew. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. If you are on Twitter, you can follow us there live. This is the song Phil Hub. is saying, this is my story in love. Maybe uh, Masoud can explain to us. Good morning Masoud, are you there?
0: Good morning, it's a pleasure to join you.
2: Um, It's my pleasure Masoud. It is always wonderful to read a book and then um, to uh, be able to talk to the author and ask all the questions that we as readers would love to ask you, because I know that no matter what, uh, there are more things that you would love uh, to uh, talk about, but uh, the books are limited. Uh, Let me just introduce you, Masoud, again uh, to our listeners. This is Masoud Hayoun. Uh, He's a journalist based in Los Angeles. He has reported for Al Jazeera English Pacific Standard, Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown Online, the Atlantic Agence uh, France Press, and the South China Morning Post. He speaks and works in five. Languages, I am, uh, and you won the 2015 EPI Award. I'm suspecting you speak English, uh, French, uh, Arabic, Hebrew, what else? Uh,
0: none of those languages fluently, I'm okay. going to be honest. I'm not a single one. <laughs> Just okay. a shakshuka of, uh, of all of the above, basically.
2: But, uh, but you do know sh- salam, shalom, peace, stuff like ah. that.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: okay. So uh, I, I want to tell our listeners that this is uh, the book uh, "When We Were Arabs: a Jewish Families' Forgotten History." Of course, I, who grew up in the Arab world. And you later, in my later years, I think when I lived in Egypt, uh, Masoud, that there were, and there are uh, uh, Egyptian Jews and they still live there. And when I was much older, a few, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, I was able to visit the synagogue in Egypt, which is a beautiful, beautiful synagogue. And the lady who is responsible, I think, is a female. But uh, I want to ask you, Masoud, why did you write uh, this book? We are used in the West to know that, um, you know, Arabs are only Muslims and there is a small persecuted minority of Christians. And there was some some period of time Jews, but the Arabs kicked them out. So why did you write this book?
0: Um, for so many reasons. It became impressed upon me and my grandmother who is like a co-author on this book. First, I should say that my grandmother uh, raised me sort of as a mother to me. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really the 2014 offensive on, on Gaza on the Palestinian people that impressed upon us the need to say these things that we had felt for some time publicly. So there are I, there are some people who kind of responded to this book before reading it thinking that it was just a an exploration of a novel kind of group of people who you don't often hear about and how interesting and curious it is that there are people who sit at the nexus of both Arabness and Judaism. Um, that's not what it is. Honestly, for me to claim Arabness uh, in the way that... Other people would have liked to have seen me do it in the way where I say we had a belly dancer at my bar mitzvah, we listened to Arabic music, we um, on occasion prayed Jewish prayers to the tune of uh, songs from the classic era of Egyptian cinema. That that kind of stuff is not really significant to me so much as the political prescience of um, identifying or being in solidarity with people who the world expects me to be uh, hateful toward, that to me is a powerful enterprise. So I am interested, obviously, in our cultural legacy and the fact that uh, for Shabbat on sun, uh, Saturday mornings, we we ate fulundemis and that we uh, loved Arabic music and that at any of our bar mitzvahs, weddings, etc. It was always Arabic music and dance. And the Arabic language was one that I w- I grew up listening to the kind of colloquial North African Arabics that were in my home. Um, but this isn't about language or food or music or the novelty of me existing so much as it is to say The groups of people that you think exist that need to exist for the people in power to continue to kill and oppress people, they don't exist in the way that you think that they exist. We need to reconfigure the entire world. Uh, If you think that an Arab and a Jew are two mutually exclusive, hard-set, black-and-white, blood-based categories, you're wrong, and your, your failure to understand the nuance that is humanity is actively killing people in Palestine and elsewhere in the Arab world insofar as the movement for Palestinian liberation is a microcosm, not a microcosm, is, is a centerpiece of the movement for Arab and I would say by extension of that human liberation more broadly.
2: I'm going to be talking about all the politics of the book uh, towards uh, maybe the second half of the show, Um, uh, Masoud. And uh, our listeners, you can always send us to dj at wmnf.org if you have any questions. I'm not sure if we're going to be opening the phone lines. Maybe we will. But uh, this is a very interesting uh, conversation that we're going to have with uh, Masoud. So please, if you have any questions, send them to dj at wmnf.org. And again, uh, we are uh, live on twitter if you want to follow through my handle name which is samar d jarrah before we go into these details masoud i want the listeners to understand when like you're talking About uh, It's not about culture, it's not about music, it's not about uh, only that, but it's more deeper and we will get to this. But they need to understand, for instance, the, the, the major hero of this book or the major character or the central figure in your life too as a human being, which is Oscar. So can you tell us a little bit about who Oscar is and how did he live in Egypt before everything started to go sour?
0: Absolutely. So Oscar, Oscar Hayoun was my uh, grandfather who raised me in Los Angeles uh, as, as the only father that I ever had. And um, he, first it's important to say that he, he died when I was 16 years old and that death sort of began the life that I live now forever in search of him everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that was why I ended up going back to the Arab world to find the essence of him. Mm -hmm. And that was why I decided to explore more of what his life had been. And he was born in in Egypt, uh, in Alexandria, at a time of, uh, cosmopolitanism yes but there were also a, a number there was uh, it was a British protectorate um, Egyptians were second-class citizens within their own country it was also a um, it was also a time of I, I I don't really want to use the word tolerance, but uh, religious acceptance of of um, people of every faith in the Arab world, kind of coming together and configuring uh, an Arabist future. So he was raised in a very Europeanized, colonized Alexandria, um, where Jewish Egyptians existed without question. Um, There were a great many Jewish Egyptians who were very prominent in government, in music, in film, um, who were very patriotic for the cause of Egyptian and by extension of that Arab liberation at the time, particularly among the more socialist elements of that society that he lived in. Um, My grandfather left me three uh, handwritten autobiographies Mm -hmm. in Costco notebooks or it was price club back then. And they endeavored to tell his life and I never read them just out of laziness. And for the purpose of this book, I, I started reading them and I always assumed that they would be kind of divided up very evenly between his life in Egypt and the first one his life in France and occupied Palestine in the second one, and then his life in the United States in the third one. The the thing is, there was no life described after Egypt, after he left in his early 30s, which is how old I am now.
1: Uh,
0: his life ended when he left Egypt. And he, and he left Egypt because of the changes of 1948, because various imperialist powers made it impossible for our community to continue to live in the Arab world. So that's to say that my grandfather continued to live in, in Egypt and in Alexandria of the mind until he died in his 80s in Los Angeles. And I was raised in that home. I was raised in a home uh, that that fed itself on recollections of what that Egypt and that Arab world, because my grandfather was partially of Moroccan origin. There were a lot of people from all over the Arab world and even the southern Mediterranean uh, and and Britain, of course, who were living in Egypt at the time. Our home was a, a kind of an Egypt of the mind. And I'll continue to live in that Egypt of the mind Okay. It, it, mourning him after his death.
2: If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM and I'm talking to uh, Masoud Hayoun who is the author of When We Were Arabs, a Jewish Family's Forgotten History, a fascinating book that I encourage you to read it. Actually, um, Masoud, I had the double advantage of downloading the book on my uh, iPad and I was listening to you reading it, so it's different when the author is is reading his own uh book so your uh, your grandfather uh you mentioned lived as a second class citizen was he treated as such by the fellow egyptians um, uh, muslims or christians or were you are talking about the uh, the british mandate uh, over egypt at that time and what do you mean by a second class citizen
0: i mean that he was a second-class citizen in the sense that all indigenous peoples under colonialism in the Arab world were treated as second-class citizens with regards to the European uh, intruders.
2: Okay, so that we just want to so make clear that all. it wasn't like the Egyptian Muslims, for instance, will shun them and not invite them to their homes or any of that. It was the whole mandate system.
0: Absolutely not, uh, vis-a-vis other Egyptian people who considered Oscar to be Egyptian, uh, even Mm -hmm. though he was part Moroccan. Uh, There was a a system that legally and socially uh, otherized uh, indigenous people within their own ancestral homeland. Uh, And it's such an important point that you raise that, it's sad to me that I need to specify that it wasn't Egyptian people who were persecuting my family at that time because the running narrative is that our entire history within the Arab world since time immemorial was just a history of, of, of continuous persecution and violence. That's not to say that our communities, that, that religious minorities and uh, ethnic minorities or what have you within the context of the Arab world didn't face uh, awful oppression and violence. It's to say that that is a particular historical narrative that's pushed by people who want to continue to assail the Arab world and that a more nuanced picture of the history of the Arab world shows that uh, that's short-sighted because really every single group within the Arab world to include many Muslims, to include any kind of political dissidents, had problems with accountable government as was the case in the West in in different ways. Uh, And yet somehow at the onset of colonialism in our world, uh, the the West seemed to uh, posit itself as a kind of beacon of progressivism and support to minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, and to women. one of the one of the inspiring kind of icons for this book was Nawal El Saadawi from Egypt the mm-hmm. Egyptian feminist who in her preface to the hidden face of eve which is an important uh, arab feminist uh, treatise scene, says even though this book is being translated into english I want you to, to, I want you, and she's writing to, in particular, Western feminists, not believe that this is an excuse for you to intervene in our world or to further a Western colonial footprint in our world. For, for me, writing about our people in the English language, because I can't write about our people mm-hmm. in the Arab language, and that is to say, the Arab peoples, um, it was a, a dangerous thing to do because there are so many people who want to weaponize any experience my family had with discrimination or violence against my people, against the Arab peoples. I I have to put my foot down and I appreciate the opportunity on this uh, show to say ours was not a history of constant sorrow and uh, discrimination and, and violence. We were there at the beginning of People beginning to identify as Arab. I continue in my identification with an Arab cultural and ethnic and historical legacy to be a part of the building of the, and the defense of the, and the liberation of the Arab peoples. That's important to know.
2: So I want to know uh, Masoud, and again to our listeners, this is True Talk on WMNF eighty eight point five FM. We're talking to Masoud Hayoun. He's the author of the wonderful book When We Were Arabs: A Jewish Families' Forgotten History. So. Wh- are there like concrete steps that the British took in Egypt um, where they uh, divorce the Jewish Arab from the rest of uh, the uh, Arabs or from the homeland where where your grandfather had to leave? There so, was... Mm, yeah, go ahead. Like, like, are the, like, Can you give me examples of what concrete steps they took?
0: Really, there was at the time in the in the Arab world of the beginning of uh, the, the latest European intrusion that affected my grandparents' generation. It was a French school system that was popular across the Arab world uh, called the Alliance Israelite schools uh, that began to teach uh, students in their schools that they were not part of their home societies, that they were not part of their indigenous Communities, but that they were part of a Jewish nation that existed transnationally. Uh, uh, and this idea of a, a Jewish nation that existed transnationally was not one that was intuitive to uh, the generations that came before my, my grandparents. Um, that French school system existed in Egypt at a time when France and Britain were both jockeying for power before uh, the British formalized their protectorate over Egypt. Then after the British took power in uh, Egypt, the French school system was still heavily entrenched and began to re-Arabize, de arabized populations. It, if that makes sense, it's a bit confusing. Uh,
2: so Arabize, of- uh, sorry, uh, so Arabize, for instance, Egyptian Muslims, but not Jewish uh, Egyptians
0: no, this is it's it's such a kind of convoluted imperialist machination that I should I should begin again. Okay. This was a Jewish school system set up by the French colonial power before the British formalized their mandate over okay. Egypt, and it existed across the Arab world. the The original purpose of this school system was to de Arabize mm-hmm. the elites in uh, Jewish Arab communities and let that de Arabization trickle down. Okay. So, at a time when France had anticipated that they would be colonizing uh, Egypt, not the British, Mm -hmm. they de-Arabized the Jewish Egyptian communities. Mm -hmm. They reversed that policy around the time of my grandfather's generation to Arabize them, and there are specific uh, uh, policy, there are specific curricula, uh, specific documents saying we want to reintegrate into mainstream, that is to say, non-Jewish Arab society, these Jewish Egyptian communities. And the very clear, kind of very thinly veiled purpose behind re-Arabizing them only within the Egyptian, British-dominated context was to promote that the Jewish Egyptians join movements uh, uh, together with Muslim and Christian Egyptians to throw off an Egyptian uh, protectorate so that France could swoop in and further its footprint in the Arab world. And this had a lasting effect on how both Oscar and Daida were, Daida being my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Daida was part of a community that was effectively de-Arabized. My grandmother spoke a colloquial Tunisian Arabic, but didn't know how to write it, uh, didn't know how to read in Arabic. Uh, identified less with the, she watched a lot of Arabic movies, but always identified more with France being the center of civilization. And and then Oscar, where it was a policy of the colonial school systems to re-Arabize, uh, was fluent in Arabic uh, on his spare time, would translate books from Arabic to English for me to read them from the library. Uh, the, these were things that seemed like natural uh, parts of their personality when I was growing up, but that were actually decided mm-hmm. for us by people across the Mediterranean in Paris and London. Uh, so, yes.
2: So, uh, so the, uh, the Egypt ended up uh, under the British. Yes. So, uh, what happened to your uh, grandfather uh, m- uh, towards the last years of hers uh, living in Egypt?
0: Uh, my grandfather ended up uh, volunteering for the British war effort. Uh, uh, at the at the time, uh, really venerating the British in the kind of strange way that people with colonial mentalities end up half venerating and half resenting the people that they're second that they're considered to be secondary to. For example, I lived in Hong Kong for a period of time and there were a lot of people who described this kind of strange feeling toward Britishness that they resented the fact that under the British, there were huge swaths of Hong Kong and Central uh, District, for example, where uh, where if you were of Chinese ethnicity, you could only go there if you were a maid or a cook for a, a working class person. The, that was the same view that my grandfather had of the British, was that he wrote in his journals that uh, he, he was looked down upon by these people who he was volunteering for for some reason and working for unpaid for their war effort because they had transplanted what was a fundamentally European conflict onto Egyptian soil. And at the same time, he venerated everything about them. He loved uh, British films, British products, uh, because the British had uh, made themselves out to be a center of civilization and progress.
2: Wow it is so similar um, Masoud uh, to what is going on and was going on and still is going on in the Arab world I know that you eventually visited the Arab world but like in uh, Egypt and uh, for instance in many gulf uh, countries in Jordan um you were you were an upper class if you sent your kids to english schools and now we have a generation that uh, my nieces and nephews cannot read my arabic books uh, they can converse with me in Arabic, but their, uh, their compass is in the West. Um, maybe America more than Britain, but for them, yeah, it's both, the two English languages. So this colonization has not stopped. It just changed gears or at least these schools are still there. I want to shift to uh, what, how he left and where did he go to and how he ended up in Palestine. And maybe what you can do is read the, an excerpt about him when he went to Palestine and found out um, he is dealing with stolen goods and lands.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Would you like me to read that? Uh, yeah. I have
2: Yes. So he left Egypt to uh, France or to um, Palestine? It it was the case
0: that at the time that my family left around 1950, that you weren't allowed Mm -hmm. to go directly from Egypt to uh, occupied Palestine, but that you could go through France. Okay. Um, And there were uh, kind of operatives who helped our family transition from a camp in southern France to uh, Haifa.
2: Okay. Can you read them? Yeah.
0: Yes. The Hayuns were living in a tent city, that is in occupied Palestine, about an hour and a half south of Haifa by bus in a place called Bir Yaakov. They ate rationed food and awaited relocation to more permanent dwellings. Imagine me having nothing to do after a busy life in Egypt. It was not a life in this place, Oscar wrote. I used to roam around the villages in the company of a younger boy looking for citrus groves Picking sweet lemons and oranges, all the groves were owned by Arabs who had fled. These were ghost towns pillaged and still unsettled by the invaders. The Palestinians who had grown those fruits either slaughtered or made homeless before their harvest.
2: So your father couldn't stay in occupied Palestine?
0: He he found no place for himself in the context of this society that had been envisioned uh, as a kind of a European bastion in the East uh, on the ash heap of Palestinian civilization.
2: So what did he think of Zionism? Did he talk to you about it or did he write about it uh, in his uh, memoirs or the papers that he left you?
0: Zionism as an ideology, my grandfather didn't really seem to... My Oscar was not... The not a political person, and he was he was an apolitical person out of fear, I think, more than anything else. And I think that was because when he left Egypt, the Egyptian government, for a long time uh, around the onset of Zionism, had uh, was was good about differentiating between Jewish Egyptians and Zionists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but at a certain point in time. Uh, uh, And already by the time that Oscar and his family left, they dissolved the Egyptian citizenship of the Jews who left. So that seemed to be a kind of trauma for Oscar. He he didn't believe that citizenship or nationality or belonging in a place is something that can't be very easily dissolved for someone. Um, So for example, when the United States invaded Iraq, Mm -hmm. I was in high school and I went to a lot of protests at the time. And it was probably the first time that I ever went to a protest where anti-war protests against the Iraq invasion. Uh, When I came home from those protests, Oscar was livid that I would involve myself in the politics of this country. And the implication was that my citizenship, even as somebody who was born in the United States, would be dissolved because mm. he had his citizenship dissolved in a place where he never thought that would be possible. It's, it's important to note at the same time that there were early Zionist operatives who had perpetrated terrorist attacks in Egypt that began to turn the local non-Jewish Egyptian population against Jewish Egyptians?
2: I think it is known as the Lavon affair. People can Google Lavon affair where uh, bandits would go and uh, blow up, I think, like uh, American uh, centers, uh, uh, like educational centers and seem to blame it on uh, Jews and Egyptians and wasn't it something like that? Uh, yes, Maso?
0: yes. Across the across the Arab world, not just in Egypt, in Baghdad, there were similar similar fire bombings. There were there were these incidents where local populations were being turned against Jewish populations actively, without any concern for who would be targeted among local Jewish Arab populations the The point wasn't to uphold or preserve or protect Jewish lives within the Arab context. it was all in service of the occupation of Palestine, and it made it it made it increasingly difficult for local administrations for Arab administrations uh, to not view local Jewish communities with suspicion. That's not to say that my grandfather's citizenship should have been. Uh, dissolved. It's to say that it seems to have been a very kind of cynical, calculated tactic of the Zionist operatives at, of this time to turn local populations against us to make it impossible for us to continue to live in that context.
2: And hoping that they will go and populate occupied Palestine after driving the people. Which is weird because once your grandfather, Oscar, landed in Palestine, they uh, sprayed him with DDT. So these who were uh, like Eastern Jews were not treated uh, kindly, were they? And still are not, I guess.
0: Absolutely. And it's important to note that this isn't only something faced by Jewish Arabs. This is uh, the DDT was sprayed on... Eastern Jews, people who were considered Oriental Jews, the people who came from from Russia and Eastern Europe eventually uh, because of Eastern Europeans like Golda Meir who ended up being uh, in power. Um, they ended up being part of the upper crust, but when they first arrived, they were considered to be Oriental and backward Jews and were sprayed down with DDT. The, the history of anti-Jewish behavior on the part of the uh, early Israeli government is is one that's shared by both European and uh, non-European Jewish communities. Just one colonial project,
2: with it, different it, names.
0: Exactly the the important point of this book that one of the one of the things that I had hoped to do with this book was to show that even though the Zionist movement was one that. Uh, was slightly different from the French colonial and British colonial movement in that it showed the local Jewish communities that occupied Palestine would be the center of their future universes as opposed to France and London. In practice, it was a continuation of that legacy because it divorced us from our home communities. We were no longer able to see ourselves as One people together with the rest of Tunisian, Moroccan, Egyptian people, we were taught that we were another people where that didn't exist in our histories. For example, I talk about uh, in Dida, my grandmother's um, community in Tunisia, there were several kind of very bitter divisions between Jewish communities that lived within the Tunisian context. There were people who came after the Spanish Inquisition and there were mm-hmm. people from Livorno, Italy, who uh, the Tuenza, which is what we called ourselves Tunisian Jewish people who had been there since time immemorial, considered not even to be real Jews because they resembled Europeans too much. Their, their practice of Judaism in our minds looked too much like Christianity to have been anything like our Judaism. Of course, I don't believe that. I believe that there are many ways of practicing Judaism. Mm -hmm. But it's to say that the idea that this European school system pushed of a transnational Jewish people that had always lived under oppression and that needed to return to an idea of biblical Canaan that exists in a spiritual and not really a, a physical realm for us, was not one that was intuitive or natural to Oscar and Dida and the people before their generations. It's one that needed to be taught to them over a series of generations. And that there were very specific policy documents, first in the French and British colonies, and then in the Zionist occupation, the European Zionist occupation of Palestine, that wanted them to slowly forget over time, over generations, that we had ever had any competing identity with our faith.
2: Actually uh, uh, Masoud, there is one uh, French document that you mentioned, the name escapes me. Do you remember what it is? Maybe our listeners can Google it and see to what extent the French went into um, how much they played. And created class and division among not only the Jewish people, but especially about uh, the Jews uh, of the Arab world. Do you you remember the name of this? It escapes me in your book. Absolutely. It's
0: the Alteras Cohen document, the first Jewish uh, French dignitaries to go to Algeria.
2: Alteras? Sorry, Alteras.
0: Alteras Cohen uh, report. And these were French dignitaries uh, at the onset of. Uh, the French uh, occupation of Algeria who went to Algeria to survey the local Jewish communities and see how Jewish Algerian communities, which were themselves very diverse, could be uh, weaponized against the greater mass of Algerian people for the purpose of further colonizing them. This uh, report said very specifically they will forget that they were indigenous peoples over several generations, and they will then act as a kind of a go-between between the Western power and the colonized indigenous Muslim populations. Wow. And then it extrapolated from that to say, you know, we're looking, we're looking at furthering our footprint in other Arab communities and other Arab nations throughout the Arab world. And there are other important uh, Jewish Arab communities there as well. They mentioned specifically Egypt, that they're looking at colonizing Egypt and that they could weaponize the very influential uh, Jewish Egyptian communities in Alexandria, Cairo, Mansoura uh, to, to take over those communities in Baghdad they're looking at enlarging their footprint by taking the Jewish community and weaponizing them. It's important to note that at this time in French history, the the Jewish French communities had themselves just been emancipated. Um, They had a still shaky unstable uh, status within France of not being secondary French citizens themselves. So these dignitaries were envisioning a stronger role for France Mm -hmm. Through colonialism, saying that that Jewish French people can serve their nation, and uh, by by weaponizing Jewish Arab communities against their indigenous compatriots. Oh God! It's a very cynical document. Yeah. It's a document that actually uh, says a lot to me about how my family ended up. Because the thing is, um, my grandfather tried to teach me Arabic. I've tried to. Be around other Arab American people, but let's face it: a lot of uh, the Arabness that existed in my grandparents' generation doesn't exist for me. It couldn't exist for me. Yeah. I don't. I, I identify strongly with Arab liberation. I see myself as part of that whole, but I'll never speak Arabic uh, as a as a native language. I'll never really understand certain things about the Arab world because people in Paris. In the 1800s, envisioned that every single generation in my family would become uh, progressively less Arab, and by all accounts, it worked. Wow. only I refuse. Yeah. And that's what this book is. It's a rejection of that erasure.
2: I hope the, the new generation in the Arab world would uh, listen to you and read it and understand that living in the Arab world and not being able to read a book in Arabic is is uh, is a disaster. Astounding. astounding it, yes. It's colonized it's coloni- and I think you mentioned that uh, colonizing the brain but I want just to remind our listener uh, Masoud that this is a true talk on WMNF 88.5 FM and I am talking to Masoud Hayoun who's a journalist based in Los Angeles, and he is the author of the wonderful book "When We Were Arabs: Jewish Families' Forgotten History." I encourage you uh, to listen to it because uh, Masoud reads it himself, and you know his pronunciation of singers and food and things that uh, are Jewish is uh, is perfect. And I want to shift uh, gears a little bit. I want to talk about your uh, grandmother. Uh, she is also part of your character and your upbringing, and she's co-author. But let me uh, just play uh, this song by Louisa Tunsia, Ya Urda, or Ya warda uh, Ya Wardah, uh, Masoud. Uh, let's like listen for uh, a couple of minutes and then we'll come back and you ta- tell us about the, uh, the culture, uh, if it's still there. Or it uh, disappeared from uh, Egypt, Tunisia, and Algeria. This is a true talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. You are listening now to Louisa Tuncia. Talk, uh, this is your host Samar Jarrah, and you were just listening to uh, Louisa Tunsiya. Who is she, uh, Masoud?
0: Louisa Tunsiya was part of this generation of uh, Jewish Arab singers that um, kind of. Uh, Jewish people at the time, I guess, were free from some of the social mores of of their Muslim compatriots and were better able to become uh, cabaret singers. There's a kind of a phenomenon uh, around the time of Louisa Tonsi, just before my grandmother's generation and, and uh, lasting until a uh, little after it, of Jewish Tunisian women singing songs uh, sometimes they're very racy songs uh, that they're allowed to sing uh, because they're not beholden, I think, to some of the same social mores. Although this is not the the truth, there was still a very much a, a double standard for the the natiness of our the good girls of our community and the girls who are allowed to sing in cabarets or the women who are allowed, excuse me, to sing in cabarets. Luisa Tonseya is considered to be Uh, one of the greatest singers of this generation of Tunisian music. Um, Singers like her include Habiba Masika, another Jewish Tunisian uh, singer. Um, This kind of culture is often forgotten in the West, but very much exists in Tunisia. If you tell many Tunisian people, at least uh, in Tunis, the people that I've uh, encountered, about Khabiba Louisa Tunseya, they'll know that these are Jewish Tunisian singers who uh, are Tunisian, full stop, and part of the Tunisian canon of what makes our, our music great.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about your grandmother?
0: Absolutely. Um, my grandmother, Daida, raised me in the United States, in Los Angeles, and she was originally from Tunis, from a family, from a, a Smaller coastal town called Mahdiye, uh in Tunisia. Um, her family on one side had been a kind of a modest uh, family that worked in oil, olive oil production, and on another side, um, she came from a long line of. Uh, royal government dignitaries, to use the, the Ottoman Empire term, uh, government dignitaries, um, some of which were more infamous than others. Um, and regardless of the specifics, which you can read in the book, her family was one that was uh, very much tied to Tunisia's history, um, that was very patriotic for uh, Tunisia. Un- until today, many of my grandmother's uh, relatives, those who are still alive, live in France. I mean, some of them s- still live in Tunisia or ended up going back to Tunisia, but they, some of them w- moved to France, married uh, French Catholic women, um, and never took French citizenship. And that's kind of a, a common occurrence among Jewish Tunisian people of that generation in France. And it really is a function of our pride in Tunisianness. Also, the Riba the synagogue, the famous synagogue in Jerba on an island uh, off the coast of Tunisia, is really the centerpiece of our Judaism. For, for, for Daida's family to go on a pilgrimage to this synagogue was extremely important for very uh, important kind of spiritual reasons. Uh, the centerpieces, the, the focal points of our Judaism were within the context of our, of our nations. The important rabbis, the important spiritual leaders that we had were at home. That's why you still see a large Jewish community in Tunisia today is that it is not even just important to us out of patriotism. It is spiritually significant to us. Um, And then I I think I'm especially proud, even though there were moments in Tunisian history where the Jewish-Tunisian communities face violence and discrimination, that Tunisia has found a way to be home to... Uh, one of the largest Arab world, uh, Jewish communities and also continue to support the cause of Palestinian liberation, uh, as we see other uh, nations to include my other ancestral nation of Morocco, uh, normalizing with Israel.
2: This is an NPR uh, sorry, this is the WMNF 88.5 FM and we are talking to Masoud Hayoun, the author of When We Were Arabs, the Jewish Family's forgotten history. Uh, we have like six or seven minutes, uh, but I think your grandmother met your uh, grandfather in uh, uh, France and then they moved to Los Angeles. Was she less attached to the Arab world or the Arabness or the culture than your grandfather or they both eventually put all their love for that part of the world in you equally?
0: I think for her it was it was difficult uh, I think for the reasons that I described earlier there were specific policies uh, within Jewish communities in both Tunisia and Egypt that drove them in different directions. Oscar was moved further by policy to re-Arabize to watch Arabic films to Speak perfect Arabic. Uh, several dialects of Arabic. Uh, they uh, and identify more with an Egyptian and a uh, Arab cultural and uh, national legacy.
1: Um, Daida,
0: she did identify very much, she identified to a lesser degree because of the enforced de-arabization of Jewish Tunisian communities. But the Tunisianness of Daida was something that even over the course of generations, even with the policies uh, as put out by Alteris and Cohen, she still ended up hearkening back to that. That was always very much who we were. It was just that it was more greatly impressed upon her community that you had to hide that if you wanted to be a bourgeois person in the imperialist world that we live in.
2: Tell me, Masoud, about your uh, visits to the Arab world.
0: Um, I was a reporter very briefly for, uh, not, not very briefly, for several years for Al Jazeera America, and then when that closed for Al Jazeera English, um, really... It was just a job, to be honest with you. I was very happy for the opportunities that I had with Al Jazeera, and I'm very grateful to them. Uh, But because I worked for Al Jazeera, kind of ironically, uh, my former colleagues have told me it wouldn't be safe for me to go back to Egypt at this point. I hope that that's not true. I would hope to go back to Egypt at some point, but I do think that it's ironic that uh, a Jewish Arab guy would be kind of classed as an Islamist person (laughs) because having worked for Al Jazeera, so that's ironic and a little bit funny. So I went to Egypt one time long before I worked for Al Jazeera and didn't appreciate it as much as I should have uh, if I would have known that because I took a job with Al Jazeera, I wouldn't be able to go back as easily. So uh, that was my one experience with Egypt and because I had a very difficult time emotionally going there without Oscar Uh, I didn't end up going to Alexandria or seeing uh, his street or visiting the graves of my ancestors or um, any of that. I very much hope to do that in the near future. How about that? To
2: Tunisia, oh. yeah. One minute and
0: a half. Yeah. Oh, please. To Tunisia after my grandmother died. This book is about me kind of uh, grappling with the death of my grandparents and how Arabness makes them immortal for me. So I went back to Tunisia after my grandmother died and uh, found people who really looked like her family and who treated us like family in that tiny, magnificent, exceptional nation that's still struggling for government accountability.
2: I want to thank you so much, Masoud Hayoun, the author of When We Were Arabs: a Jewish Family's Forgotten History, for being on True Talk. It was very nice of you to wake it's a up great honor. to wake Thanks. up this early in Los Angeles. Thank you, Masoud. Thank you, Ms. Jarrah. Thank you. So this ends our uh, interview with uh, Masoud I hope you had enjoyed enjoyed it and I think on Twitter for some reason the people couldn't hear the conversation but it is always on the archives of uh, WMNF you can do go to WMNF.org click on the schedule and go to Friday and True Talk and you will always find it there thank you so much for uh, tuning in and thank you for supporting WMNF and thank you for supporting True Talk I know next month we're going to be fundraising uh, again soon inshallah and uh, let me just play a little bit of this amazing uh, song that I played in the beginning people liked it.
1: This is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Best little radio station on planet Earth. Stay tuned for NPR News. And then Joellen's sitting in for Stu, so don't go anywhere.